As soon as the circumstance change or the mawdu and the circumstance, the rest of the amal are accepted. If it is rejected, then their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their background. The dissension of the Holy Quran was a gradual process which took 23 years. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those 23 years completed the message of 124,000 prophets. Allah within the holy city of Mecca and Medina revealed many verses and chapters discussing the affairs of the Muslim community that lived in the Arabian Peninsula to guide the Muslim community that lived in the holy city of Mecca and the holy city of Medina 1,400 years ago. But not only for them. <coughs> the aim of the dissension of the Qur'an and the establishment of the religion of Islam was not only meant for them, people who lived in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula. And it was not meant for that specific time. 1,400 years ago. But the Holy Quran and the teachings of the religion of Islam are meant to remain eternal and for the end of time. And the verses within the Holy Quran are meant to enlighten the path of individuals then and until the end of time. And the laws and the regulations, the fiqh of Islam is meant to be a way of life for people who lived in Mecca and Medina and the Arabian Peninsula 1,400 years ago and until today and for the end of time. Therefore, it is only meaningful for us to believe that the Islamic teachings are teachings that renew themselves, are teachings that are flexible to serve the needs of individuals within the course of history. And it becomes impossible for us to be under the impression that some of the solutions given by the Ma'sumin to the people who lived in Mecca and to the people who lived in Medina and within that surrounding area 1,400 years ago will remain as the perfect solutions for us today. Therefore, it is only rational for us to look for methodologies which speak of the importance of circumstance, time, era, place, environment, the circumstance 
and which then dictates the Islamic laws, the Islamic regulations, and the Islamic teachings. And the effect of time and the effect of place, the effect of Al-Zaman and the effect of Al-Makan is one of the most important discussions taking place within the Islamic seminaries and within the seminaries of the followers of Ahlul Bayt. Also, there is a new fiqh and there is a new discussion known as Al-Zamakan, the combination of Zaman and the combination of Al-Makan, the place, that plays a role in shaping this institution of fiqh, in shaping the school of thought that determines our day-to-day life by using the Islamic laws and regulations. And for the past 40 years, there has been so much emphasis on the discussion of Al-Zamakan, the influence of Zaman, time, era, and Al-Makan, the place and the circumstance on Fiqh. That's many of the scholars, many of the mujtahids, many of the fuqaha, many of the maraja' are now teaching their bahthul kharij, discussing this theory. Many of them have written books, lengthy books, discussing this theory. Many of the Islamic universities are now offering PhD courses discussing this theory. Multiple PhD theses have been written discussing this theory. Many undergraduate courses are now offered at Islamic universities analyzing and examining the notion of effect of time and place on fiqh. And of course, fiqh, brothers and sisters, follows two very important pillars. Those are the pillars of our ahkam. One is the circumstance. What's also referred to by the fuqaha as the mawdu', the circumstance. The circumstance is then what dictates the hukm, the Islamic law. What do I mean? For example, at the time of dhuhr, at the time of noon, once this time begins, until this time ends, there is a calling. There is a calling from Allah to every believer. What is the calling? Conduct Salat al-Dhuhr. When the time of Salat al-Asr comes, that is the circumstance. It brings its own hukm and calling. It says, pray Salat al-Asr. Similarly, in the beginning of the month of Ramadan, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الْشَهْرَةِ This is the circumstance. Whoever from you witnesses this month is present and alive, healthy and well and capable in the month of Ramadan, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الْشَهْرَةِ Then the hukm is, فَلْيَصُمْهُ Must then fast. So the mawdu' or the circumstance of the month of Ramadan, it's the beginning of the month. What is the hukm? What is the Islamic law? 
You must then observe siyam. Similar, similarly, the mawdu' of hajj. Hajj is in a specific time. You cannot do hajj in the month of Rajab. You cannot do hajj in the month of Muharram. We must perform hajj in the month of the hajjah So when the month of the hajjah comes, there is a calling. Because the mawdu', the circumstance is now there. There is a hukm, there is a calling for all the believers who have not performed hajj, who have the capability to perform hajj, who have what's called istita'ah, to perform hajj. Now, the religious laws of the prophets and the ma'sumin and the holy Qur'an are not laws that are meant to change, like I said. When Rasulullah came with a message, when Rasulullah came with the religion of Islam, the religion of Islam was meant for people then and until the end of time. That is true. However, those laws and regulations evolve and must evolve as the circumstance changes. How so? Let us look at the most important and the pillars of our belief. Our practice, salah, as-salatu amudu'd-deen. Salah is the pillar of religion. Salah is the pillar of faith. As-salatu amudu'd-deen. In qubilat, qubila ma siwaha wa in ruddat rudda ma siwaha. If it is accepted, can we have a little bit of volume? I cannot raise my voice anymore. If it is accepted, the rest of the a'mal are accepted. If it is rejected, then the rest of the a'mal are rejected. When it comes to salah, the circumstance is there. It's the time of dhuhr. You're facing the qibla. Everything's fine. You begin your salah and that is your calling. That is your wajib. The hukm tells you you must now conduct your dhuhr prayers. And then you look and there is somebody drowning in front of you. Somebody drowning. By the time you finish your salah, this person's dead. Now the circumstance has changed and the hukm immediately changes. Break your salah, save his life. Regardless whether this person is your family, whether this person is Muslim, whether this person is mu'min, whether this person is a practicing believer, a non-practicing believer, a sinful person, you must then break your salah and save his life. Why? Because the circumstance has changed. The mawdu' has changed. The calling changes. So the calling tells you pray, pray, pray. Then it changes and it says stop the prayer and now save a life. What if you say no? I don't want to stop my salah. I'm going to finish my salah. What do the ulama say in regards to the salah? They say this salah was performed when there was no calling. As in, yes, it's haram for you not to save that person's life. But ultimately you've prayed. So you've done your wajib. The ulama say you have to repeat the salah. Why do you have to repeat the salah? Because when you performed the salah, there was no calling for the salah. Allah did not require the salah for you, from you. So when you said, I performed the salah qurbatan ila Allah ta'ala because Allah has asked me for the salah, 
Allah tells you, I didn't ask you for that salah then. You did the salah on your own. Once you've saved this person and the circumstance has returned, I then once again ask you for salah. And therefore there is a calling for that salah. When you perform it, then you erase that need for you to perform the salah and what is required of you. Similarly, when it comes to fasting, siyam. The month of Ramadan begins, there's a calling for all the baligh mu'mineen and mu'minat around the world, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their background, regardless of their job description, to what? Observe siyam. Kutiba alaykumu siyam. And siyam has been pre prescribed onto you, so you must perform the siyam. Now somebody's ill. If they fast, their illness becomes worse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then makes an exception into the, into the verse. He says the marif does not fast, the ill do not fast, the travelers do not fast. For example, a nursing mother does not fast. He's made exceptions. Now imagine you're an elderly person and the doctor tells you you cannot fast. This will affect your health. Or you're in a mental state where you cannot fast. If you fast, it's going to affect your mental state. Somebody says, I don't care, I still have to fast. We tell him there is no calling. There is no wajib prescribed onto you. So this siyam that you're doing, you're only enduring thirst and hunger. Because in the day of judgment, you say, Oh Allah, when I was 86 years old, I, I was fasting, it's not in my records. Allah says, it was not required of you, therefore you're not going to find it in your records, because you were just fasting on your own. Why? Because the circumstance has changed. Now obviously I'm not setting an age for when people fast and when they shouldn't fast. Depends on our health. Therefore, as soon as a circumstance changes when it comes to salah, when it comes to siyam, when it comes to hajj, when it comes to jihad, when it comes to zakat, when it comes to khums, and every single one of our acts of worship, when the circumstance changes, the hukm also changes. Now scholars have discussed that's within the 1,400 years that have passed. Has the circumstance and the lifestyle that people live in changed or not? As in the way we travel, the way we ate, the way we eat, the way we conduct business, the way we marry, the way we uh, establish our families. Those all have changed. Therefore, the mawdu and the circumstance for many of the laws has also changed. And therefore, it is time to re-examine those laws. It is time to re-evaluate those laws. It is time to see which one of those laws are the laws that can continue to bring prosperity 
to our lives and which ones of those laws are in need to be updated and changed. Now, this could be a very dangerous mindset as well because some people will tell you very good according to what Sayyid Jawad Khazwini is saying and obviously this is not Jawad Khazwini like I said this is a discussion in the heart of the seminary that began from the time of Shaykh Al-Mufid and it continues until today the grand of our maraja' The fuqaha, the mujtahideen have discussed this and continue to discuss this at the seminary. So it's not that it's a new theory, revolutionary theory that Jawad Qazwini has come up with. No. So some people might say that this is very beautiful because circumstance has changed. Now we don't really need to do the ruku' and the sujood and stand in salah. We just do our salah. By contemplations, by reflections, Allah resides in our hearts. We do prayers through yoga. What's wrong with that? Obviously there is something wrong with that. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed salah unto us. And the salah cannot change. This wudu or ghusl. Why do I need to do ghusl in this specific way and wudu in this specific way? If I shower, then this water encompasses all my body. My hand, my face, my feet, my hair, and the rest of my... So why do I need to do wudu? So it's time to modernize all those things. It's time to come out and say, for example, at that time marriage was between a man... And a woman today, if marriage is between the same gender, why not? Because the way we live, the way we conduct our life has also changed. No. Zurara, one of the companions of Imam al-Sadiq comes to him. He says, Ya ibn Rasulullah, what is haram and what is halal? Very simple question. What's halal and what's haram? Imam al-Sadiq says to him, the halal of Muhammad will remain the halal of Muhammad until the day of judgment. And the haram of Muhammad will remain haram until the day of judgment. So we're not here to discuss whether the laws and the regulations of Muhammad, Rasulullah, the final messenger, and the ma'sumin after him can be changed. We are here to discuss if the circumstance has changed. Then the laws and the regulations follow the circumstance and they shall also change. Let me tell you that which is being discussed by the fuqaha. That which is being discussed by the maraja'. Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, one of our greatest of scholars and thinkers... A person who has revolutionized our fiqh and the seminary. And his book, Our Islamic Economy, Tasaduna, makes an extremely important and beautiful point. He says, that because the Muslims at the time when, they were re when the Qur'an was being revealed, ended up going to battles and wars, and some of their members were taken as captives. Some of them were taken as slaves. 
prisoners of war, and they were turned into slaves. In return, when they went to battle, they also had to take some prisoners of war, some captives. And then they also turned them into slaves. Why? Because after war, when they wanted to negotiate, they said, we have three slaves. They said, we have three slaves. We have three captives. We also have three captives. So let's make a trade. Let's make an understanding. Let's strike a deal. But if the Muslims came and said, we're not going to take any slaves. We're not going to take any prisoners of war. And here are 70, 70 Muslims, 80 Muslims, taken as slaves and prisoners of war. How would Muslims be then able to strike a deal with the non-Muslims? So Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr here says that once slavery was abolished, none of those laws and regulations no longer exist within the Islamic fiqh. Because today if there is a war, you're not going to enslave anyone. Today if there is a war, we're not going to take those slaves, those captives and turn them into slaves. Yes, prisoners of war sometimes are taken and then another country takes prisoners of war and there is a trade. But they are not turned into slaves. They still remain as prisoners. Therefore, Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sad sees that the circumstance dictated such verses. Now that the circumstance has changed, the Islamic laws and regulations must also change. Don't tell me the Quran says, if a Muslim goes to a battle with a non-Muslim, the people they take, according to the Quran, then become slaves. So let's make them slaves. No scholar from the school of Ahl al-Bayt, today allows you to take any prisoner of war as slaves. I'm not talking about Daesh and ISIS and this nonsense. I'm talking about scholars. Why? Because the circumstance has changed. And therefore the laws also have evolved. There has been an extreme change in the way that we live, in the way we conduct our business, and the way we get married, and the way we behave towards our family, and the institution of family, and the institution of our communities, and the Muslim community has grown all over the world. So what are some areas that the scholars are contemplating change? due to the change in the circumstance. And when is it that the time and place Al-Zamakan comes to influence the institution of fiqh? One of them is when it comes to zakat. When it comes to diya, I apologize. What is diya? Diya is compensation for blood money. For example, Someone's attacked and they lose a limb, they lose a hand, they lose an eye, they lose an ear. Islam has laws and regulations to compensate this individual. Whether this was done by accident, whether this was done on purpose, whether it's an injury, whether it is death, it's caused death, they all have their mannerism of com compensation. 
Did I say it correctly? Compensation. And the dia is measured through one sheeps. One thousand sheeps. Or it is measured through camels, one hundred camels, male adult camels, or one hundred milking cows, or one hundred or ten thousand uh, silver coins. Or 1,000 golden coins. This is how a dia is measured for death. Now there is a death and we want to pay the compensation, compensation for this dia, the blood money. Do we choose the 100 camels? Or do we choose the 100 cows? Or do we choose the 1,000 sheep? or 1,000 golden dinars, or 10,000 uh, silver coins. Which one do we choose? Do we choose the cheapest? Do we choose the most expensive? Do we choose the average? Because today, one of them will come out to be $100,000. Another one of them will come out to be $50,000. Another will come out to be nearly $200,000. Another one of them, $400,000. So which one do we choose? If I want to buy 100 camels here in the United States, it's going to be different than buying them in Saudi Arabia. If I want to buy 1,000 sheep, it's, you better believe it's going to be much cheaper if you bought them in Australia or New Zealand than buying them, for example, in Qatar. Right? If you wanted to give a hundred, if you wanted to give a thousand golden dinars, a, a Canadian golden coin is about $160 now. An American coin, it's about $130. An Iranian one is about, you know, $75. Which one do you choose? How do you pay? And that is why the scholars of fiqh, who have studied fiqh through its history will tell you that Rasulullah came and he told people who lived in tents in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula they had no mannerism of trade they had no business they had no credit cards and checkbooks and bank accounts there wasn't a universal currency known as the United States dollar so someone came, he said, Ya Rasulullah, I want to pay my dia. He says, what do you have? What's your business? He says, Ya Rasulullah, I have sheep. I'm a shepherd. Give him a hundred sheep, a thousand sheep. Somebody else came, Ya Rasulullah, I want to pay my dia. What do you do? I have a caravan business. I take goods from Mecca to Medina with my camels. Give him a hundred camels. <coughs> someone else comes, I trade gold. Give him from your gold. I trade silver, give him from your silver. Rasulullah wanted to make it easy for them so they end up paying their dia on time. Today, if we want to make it easy for them, we have to choose the average amount 
turn it into the dollar currency and tell them now in this year, in this specific time, for example, you have to pay about $120,000 worth of diya, wherever you are in the world. And that's what makes it easy for people, comprehensive for people, understandable for people. Similarly, many people, when they come to Islamic medicine, they say, we want to follow the teachings of Islamic medicine. How to live a healthy life in accordance to Islam. And I made a reference to this yesterday. So I begin with salt. And I end with salt. Why? Because Allah, because Rasulullah has told us, begin with your food with salt and end your food with salt. But today, if you go to a doctor and you tell him, I want to stay healthy, I'm starting my food with salt, ending it with salt, he says, are you sure that's probably a good idea? Are you sure this is called healthy? Because in our terminology, salt is not meant to be consumed. In such a manner. This is going to destroy your health. It's going to jeopardize your life. But you tell him no. Because our prophet said we have to do it. <coughs> the scholars who have studied fiqh through its history will tell you Rasulullah and the imam said this to whom? To people who lived in the Arabian Peninsula who lived in tents, who had no ACs, who were sweating day and night, losing the salt from their bodies. So Rasulullah and the Imams taught them to consume salt, to, to bring back the salt that was drained out of their bodies, bodies through sweat. Nobody happened to visit them from cooler areas where they weren't sweating, they were covering themselves from the cold weather and asked them, should we start with salt and end with salt? And then they would have, been, they would have received the response of no, this does not apply to you. So at many times when we study Islamic fiqh and its history and circumstance, we realize that it's subject to change. Another area that's also discussed, and this is one of the most important discussions. I believe it will solve many of our problems. If we keep this under consideration, the situation of the Shi'i madhab will change rapidly. What is it? It's something that's also introduced by Sayyid Muhammad Baqar al-Sadr in his book, Iqtisaduna, it's also mentioned and referenced and discussed by Shaheed Mutahari and many other scholars. What do they say? They say the influence of time, place and circumstance on the scholar that's studying the fiqh. On the scholar that's studying fiqh. On the scholar that's reading the fiqh. On the scholar that's examining the sharia. Because some scholars, they're happy. You know, just like you see some people, they're happy. They have a naturally happy mood. And some scholars also go through depression. One day they're sad. One day they're happy. Some of them live in Najaf. Some of them live in Mashhad. Some of them live in Karbala. Some of them live in Qom. 
Some of them may live elsewhere. Some of them lived in Bahrain. Some of them lived in Jabal Amil of, of Lebanon. Now don't tell me when you're living there in Lebanon on top of the mountain with all those trees and the beautiful environment, it's the same as living in Najaf next to Wadi Salam, the biggest graveyard in the world. Obviously, it's going to be much different. Therefore, there are several issues that have been discussed. Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr and other scholars have stated that the circumstance and the environment that this scholar lives in and the emotions within him and his personality affects his understanding of fiqh. Therefore, that is something we must keep in mind when examining his fatwa, when evaluating his fiqh. What do I mean? Look at Sayyid al-Khoi, one of our greatest contemporary scholars, right? He believed that the khums belongs to the imam. To the imam of the time, the sixth imam, the khums belongs to him. The seventh imam, the khums belongs to him. The twelfth imam, the khums belongs to him. And the imam, after this khums belongs to him, distributes it in the way that pleases him. Because he's the representative of God on earth. This is the belief and the fatwa of Ayatollah al-Khoi. Now let us come to Khomeini, Sayyid Khomeini. What was his belief? His belief was that Khums belongs to an Islamic government. We have other scholars who believe that Khums does not belong to the Imam, neither belongs to the Islamic government. Khums belongs to the people, but it's distributed through the government, the Islamic government, or the Imam. What's the difference? They are reading the same ayat, looking at the same hadiths. One of them established an Islamic state, therefore he was, he was more lenient towards seeing things through his perspective that the Khums belong to the Islamic state. Another, which was Ayatollah al-Khoi, had nothing to do with wanting to establish an Islamic state. And he saw the Imam as the representative of Allah, so the Khums belongs to him. The others who saw that the Khums belongs to the people were people and scholars who lived in war-torn countries, who wanted to build schools, hospitals, roads, bring medicine to their people, change the situation they lived, so they said that the Khums belongs to the people. Ultimately, it does not really make a difference because it's spent the same way on schools, on hospitals, on books, on education, and whatever pleases Allah. But those scholars who come to examine the effect of time and place on the scholars have realized their difference of opinion due to the circumstance that they lived in. And that's not something we can deny. In fact, Sheikh Mutahari has a beautiful statement. He says, look at the difference between a well-traveled faqih and a faqih who's resided in a village his whole life. They're both faqih. 
They are both mujtahids. Look at the difference between a faqih that comes from a city and a faqih that comes from a village. A faqih that has academic training and a faqih that's not had academic training. This all plays a role in their decision making. And he gives this example. He says <coughs> that Sayyid Muhsin al-Hakim, his fatwa was when you do tawaf, you have to do it between the Kaaba and Maqam Ibrahim until he went to Hajj. And he saw the situation of Hajj. And the millions of people trying to do tawaf at the same time. So he says to his muqallideen, please don't do it between the Kaaba and the Maqam. You may do it anywhere in Masjid al-Haram. As soon as he saw it with his own eyes. He gives the other example. That one of the scholars was against people traveling from Muslim world to the non-Muslim world. Leaving Iran and Iraq and Pakistan going to London and to Europe and elsewhere until he fell ill. And he needed to do a surgery, though they told him the only place that you're going to end up surviving the surgery is London. So he traveled to London. And he went through the surgery. And when he went back, they asked him, the first delegation that came to visit him, what did you see in the West? He says, there I found Islam while I didn't see Muslims. I found Islam. They weren't Muslim. There was, you know, David and, and Stephanie and George and Michael. They weren't, they weren't Muslim. They weren't praying. They weren't going to Hajj. They weren't wearing hijab. But I found Islam. And when I returned, I found Muslims with no Islam. Therefore, when we travel and we see the world, when we have different cultures and backgrounds, it definitely also affects the way that the faqih also looks at the fiqh. And obviously, we believe and we Never assume that our maraja and our scholars and our books are infallible. For example, Kitab al-Kafi is not infallible. It's fallible. Bihar al-Anwar, it's not infallible. It's fallible. Our books, Man la it's not infallible. It's fallible. Kulayni and Majlisi and our ulama were all fallible. We don't have Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and, you know, these scholars never made mistakes, those scholars. And their books are infallible. In fact, what's interesting, Bukhari speaks of the Prophet being fallible, while the advocates of Bukhari will tell you this book is infallible. We're the opposite. We say the 14 Ma'sumin and the Prophets are infallible. While we study their work, we could be fallible and we can make mistakes. <coughs> that is why. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, once again, I call on to all the brothers. 
and all the sisters living in the West to make sure they take it upon themselves to spend years at the seminary, to make a sacrifice to seek the knowledge of Al-Muhammad and to pursue the fiqh of Al-Muhammad for in that will come the greatest of reform within the madhab of Ahlul Bayt. This madhab that's meant to be protected by us after the sacrifice of our imams until we deliver this amana to the Mahdi of this Ummah. Ajjalallahu ta'ala faraja wa sahala makhraja wa ja'alana man ansarihi wa a'wanah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.